Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinus, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I am so thrilled to be recording another episode for you. I have been receiving a few comments here and there. Uh, saying how much some of you miss uh, these weekly shows. And so I'm going to try and do my best uh, to get back into a regular uh, sort of habit of doing these on a weekly basis and just uh, keeping them perhaps more simple. You know, sometimes I just tend to overcomplicate things. And, you know, that's, I guess, everyone's downfall to some degree or another. But um, but just keeping these simple and just keeping them fun and lighthearted and, and just r- kind of recapping things that I've been learning and reading and seeing and and perhaps you can be encouraged uh, along the way. So uh, anyways, that's my heart. That's my goal uh, behind these. And so hopefully you will find some benefit from them. Uh, This morning, what I want to do is just walk through some of the things I preached on this past Sunday, um, and then talk about some books I've been reading, and then go through some uh, online journals uh, that I would really highly recommend to you. Whether you're in ministry or not, I think it'll give you a helpful, uh, a very insightful perspective on perhaps what you can expect or what you should expect or what you uh, ought to be looking for when it comes to uh, finding a church to get plugged into. So that sort of thing. Uh, That's what I kind of want to do. And so anyways, that's where we're going to be headed. Uh, Before we get there, uh, let me just share a word from uh, this uh, this show's The Ministry Mind podcast uh, presenting sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to Central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Okay, I hope you will take advantage of that. Uh, go over to Fresh Roasted Coffee. I think you'll really uh, enjoy some of their coffee. So, um, what did I preach on this past week? Well, uh, I was thrilled to be back at the pulpit preaching twice uh, in the morning service. I continued my sermon series on First Kings. Well, really, it's on First and Second Kings. We are making headway through this enormous book. I've been so. Um, 
I would say humbled in a very good way in terms of approaching this book and trying to articulate its history while also presenting Christ every week. Um, and I've I've loved taking on that challenge. I've loved uh, sort of having that as my operative sort of framework around which I center my sermons, which is just how does this show Christ? How does this reveal um, the Christ who is always near us, always with us, always around us and always there for us. And um, when you are reading Kings, it's that's not always readily apparent. You have to steep yourself in the text a lot. And I would say, uh, not that I have in any, I, I don't say that in any sort of way to exalt myself as if I figured out how to do that. <laughs> uh, by all means, no. Um, but I've just been really thankful for um uh, how the, the time I've been able to spend in the book uh, for the way that the I would say the Holy Spirit has been directing me each week and um, it's been uh, and then also some of the the books I've been reading have been super insightful and helpful um, uh, and so I cannot recommend enough uh, reading uh, First Kings and I, I I don't mean this to say that because I've preached these sermons but really go go listen to some of these sermons and just in, enjoy some of the exposition because I I've preached to myself so um, go listen to them and hopefully you'll find some benefit from some of these uh, amazing stories stories that perhaps you learned as a kid in like Sunday school and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we don't always think about them in the same sorts of ways that we do when we're older. Uh, and I think that that's especially true of the text I was preaching on on Sunday. So on Sunday, I was preaching on the First Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. So the last eight verses of chapter 17, which record for us an amazing little story in which the widow woman of Zarephath, with whom uh, Elijah has been staying for a while, he's kind of been uh, sojourning with her and uh, She's the one who is uh, who witnesses this amazing miracle of the barrel of meal that Elijah sort of pronounces prophetically, and Yahweh promises that will never be exhausted. So this widow woman who was on the brink of starvation now has an abundant storehouse of supplies, if you will, and uh, then what is so fascinating to me is about is the way in which. Uh, the historian positions this particular little anecdote um, right after that miracle. So we have the miracle of provision in the first, you know, bulk of First Kings 17, and then the last eight verses for us record an incredible turn of events, an incredibly dispiriting turn of events, in which this widow woman loses her son. It says in 1 Kings 17, verse 17, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. So all of a sudden, now... There's is in in there's this incredibly devastating turn of events wherein this this child who was also by the way privy to this amazing miracle at the hands of uh, Elijah and at the promise of the word of Yahweh is now pass now passes away he loses his breath his life force 
And you can imagine the devastation. And that was essentially the sort of focal point, the fulcrum around which my sermon was turning. Just this, this, the, the trajectory of, just think about the trajectory of the widow woman's life, where she is in a foreign land and she's a Gentile. She doesn't really have much to do with Yahweh. She's in a, in a region that's full of Baal worship. This Yahweh minister prophet guy comes and immediately changes her life for the better. And then actually he changes her life for the worse because he's still present, he's still around, and then all of a sudden her son is no longer. He's dead. What an incredible turn of events where this only, the only sort of introduction to this God named Yahweh that this woman has is by this immaculate and amazing provision. And you, you, we can rightly think along with her that wouldn't you, wouldn't it stand to reason then that, that, that God would be able to, this same type of God would be able to protect this child from whatever malady, from whatever illness he might be facing. I mean, you you think about how confusing this moment must have been uh, for Elijah, yeah, but for the for the widow too, as as she experiences a miracle and then is completely blindsided and devastated by this turn of events. What what a tragedy! Um, it's something that I think uh, it can, we can sympathize with. I can sympathize with the widow's frustration. You know, she says in verse 18, she basically blames Elijah for that very reason. She says in verse 18 of the same passage, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? You, you, you hear the devastation in her voice. And in fact, she's now being turned into an accusatory figure because now not only is she saying, and she's questioning the presence of this quote, man of God, she's questioning whether or not this was his intent in the first place. She literally has the thought process and has the wherewithal, the supposed logic, if you will, to say that this is because of you, that your original purpose, Elijah, was to come here and literally execute my son. That's her accusation. And who can really judge her? Who can really sort of castigate this widow? She is in a troubling situation that's made even more troubling by the presence of this man of God who she believes now is just there to remind her of her wrongdoing, to bring to remembrance her sins, and that this is her judgment, this is her punishment for uh, a life of sin, if you will, for a life that wasn't lived according to faith or godliness or any of those sorts of things. And then Elijah is likely just as devastated. He is completely wrecked. You can hear that in his prayer. You can hear that in the words that he uh, delivers in this cry, this literal guttural cry that he gives out to God. And he cried, verse 20, unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? 
He questions God's intentions, questions God's motives. Now, let me just hasten to the end of the story, and then we can kind of sort of bring it home, which is what I was aiming to do on Sunday. But um, So he prays, he prays, he cries, he embraces this lifeless son. He then cries again in verse 21, as he also, as it says there, stretches himself upon the child. He's embracing the child, identifying himself with the deadness of this little boy. And then, uh, you know what, who, you know, who hears this prayer, of course, is none other than Yahweh himself, says verse 22, and the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And a miracle occurs as it continues in verse 23, or excuse me, 22, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. The life force came back into him, and this child is brought to his mom. Elijah brings him back down the stairs, delivers her him to his, his mom, and says, See, thy son liveth, verse 23. And then the widow makes an, an amazing confession, because she says in verse 24, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So we have this incredible scene where who gets all the credit? Not Elijah, this incredible man of God, this, you know, super prophet of super duper spiritual strength. <laughs> no, actually, he was a, a man who was questioning God's intentions in this very moment. We actually are made to see the authority of the Word of God alone. And I think the point I was aiming to bring home, and I pray that it it came through, and pray that the Holy Spirit was governing my words as I spoke, was this, that God and His Word understands and is not far away from our tragedy. Let me say that again. The Word of God is, uh, I forgot what I said, (laughs) the Word of God understands and is not far away from our tragedy. And that, to me, is a remarkable truth, one that I don't think we should take lightly, one that I don't think that we can just pass over. You know, there are all kinds of preachers and speakers and, and teachers of the Bible today that would make you believe or lead you to believe that Grief and sorrow and loss and suffering are signs of something wrong in your life, are signs of something which you need to overcome, that you need to get over, that you need to weed out, that there is a a suffering with which you are afflicted that is not God's blessing. It's actually a sign of the curse. And I would say very much so in some cases that suffering is because of brokenness, because our world is broken and fractured and and evil to the core. But I would also say this, that what I have most chiefly seen, I would say learned through my mom's ordeal, which I've talked a lot about, and and, um, maybe I'll keep, get into that later, but um, the, the primary element, the primary way that we know God, that we are introduced to who God is, is through suffering. It's 
in and, and with and through our suffering that God aims to disclose gloriously who he is, who he really is. He's a God of the ashes. <laughs> He's a God of our suffering. He's a God of our pain and our doubt and our sorrow and our grief and our and our tragedy. He's a, he's a God who's not on the other side of all those things. He's a God of the middle of them all. He's, he sits with us in all of those moments, all of those seasons of sorrow and pain and hurt and triumph and tragedy and, and success and sorrow and in 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 any of the other terms that you can kind of put in there this is who God is this is where God is he meets us precisely in our suffering and the whole point of this whole story i think is to uphold the the truth that god's word is never uh, sort of far away from we who suffer sinners and sufferers are those with whom the word of god speaks the truest and the clearest and the loudest and he meets us right where we are in our place of deepest and darkest need that's where his word is found. That's where he sets up shop. I really am so thankful for this passage. I think, you know, if you want to get theological, First um, Kings 17, 17 through 24 is a passage that is extremely insightful for anyone who's been pondering a, quote, theology of the cross, which is a theological paradigm in which we've just been talking about, in which God is understood and known and seen precisely through suffering. We could say shorthand, through the cross. That's the the pinnacle of suffering. That's where God is seen. That's where he's known. Um, and I would say that that is true. It's a sort of theological understanding that I think was really fleshed out by Martin Luther, the great reformer. And uh, I've been reading uh, a lot of sort of works by him and then other works that sort of commentate on his works, if you will, and talking about the theology of the cross. And I just am so enamored by seeing that and how opposite that is of the world. Where instead of a God who calls us out of our need, we have a God who meets us in our deepest need. He meets us in our darkest hour, in those moments in which we cannot seem to get through, in which we think that we cannot get by. That's where God is found. (laughs) That's where he meets us. That's where he introduces himself to us as the face of God who says, I'm with you, I've been there, and I'm never going to leave you. This passage was so encouraging in that regard. I, I, I was just... I was just thrilled to deliver that sermon just because, not because I had come up with something uh, spectacular, but it's because the Word of God never leaves us in our moments of tragedy. (laughs) His Word is truth. (laughs) Whether the boy stayed lifeless or not, the Word of Yahweh is always true. Um, That's what I was hoping to uh, bring to bear on Sunday morning, this past Sunday. Uh, And I encourage you, go listen to that message. It was uh, a thrill of mine that the Holy Spirit uh, enabled me to deliver that. Sunday evening, uh, transitioning, I was in Philippians chapter 2. So uh, I've been engaging in a sermon series on the letter to the Philippian church uh, in the Sunday evening services. Uh, I've spent six weeks in chapter (laughs) 1, not uh, intentionally per se, but I was 
was thrilled to be able to get into Philippians chapter 2, which I think is a really momentous chapter. If you think about all that Paul talks about in uh, Philippians chapter 2, it's an incredibly rich uh, chapter of scripture. Um, And I think really what he does here is he talks about humility. Um, Of course, we know that uh, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8 or 5 through 11, we have those wonderful verses where it talks about, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and on and on it goes, talking about the humility of Christ in terms of him descending to our human frame. Um, And I think, though, that that is the through line of Philippians chapter 2, humility, and precisely humility as the sort of Uh, other hand that's holding the hand of unity in terms of what makes a joyful Christian church. And I say all that to say, like, I I think it's couched in that way because of Philippians 1 verse 27. Philippians 1 27 says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so uh, what he talks about there, this quote, conversation that becometh the gospel, it's lifestyles that demonstrate uh, the gospel, that the, the gospel has been implanted in your in your heart and soul and mind, that you're living that out, you're living out sort of what the gospel intends. Um, and so I think one of the ways that we do that is through the church, uh, standing together as a united assembly of humbled sinners. That's sort of what I have uh, was aiming to uh, engage in, and what I think is being sort of brought out through chapter two is that we have that what makes the church united, what keeps it joyful, is its sense of an understanding of humility. And so we talked about the essence of humility um, in verses 1 through 4, as he is, Paul is, seeking to demonstrate the fact that uh, what keeps a church um, grounded, what keeps a church united, what keeps a church joyful is this uh, united humility, this humble unification of its members, uh, understanding that they are sinners, all of whom and all of uh, whom... uh, stand in need of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that that is, it was a it really challenging message only because it was so pointed and sharp. Paul's words are like that. Um, but I was helped immensely in sort of the commentary, if you will, uh, by Doug Wilson, uh, who surveys the same text in uh, an article that I'll link in the notes um, uh, below. Uh, entitled Difficult Relationships. Um, But he is talking about this text and unity and and how it affects the church and the ways in which we are a church that is a fellowship, as an assembly of believers. And I love what he says here. When when Paul says, uh, let nothing be done, this is Philippians 2-3, done through trife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's a really challenging word. Uh, We don't like to think of others better than us. But uh, these are his comments on that particular verse. And uh, Doug Wilson says, quote, We tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our motives. We always lift the hood of the other guy's car first. 
We always give ourselves the advantage, but Paul says here to give the advantage, the benefit of the doubt, the other way. The first step is dealing with difficult the first step in dealing with difficult people, excuse me, is budgeting for the possibility that you might be the difficult one. <laughs> Which end quote is amazing. Uh, and I think it gets at the heart of what Paul is talking about that ecclesiastical unity, church unity, is built on this foundation of humility, which I think is brought out more and more as we contemplate the truth of the gospel as seen and known through Jesus Christ. And I think that's what he's going to bring to bear in the rest of the chapter. But anyways, that was my sermon uh, talking about the essence of humility in the first four verses of chapter two. Uh, go listen to that. I think it is, it's extremely uh, practical in terms of its uh, being p- geared towards the church, geared towards, um, uh, you know, quote, practical church doctrine and ministry and, and how it affects us in the church and how we ought to be a group of uh, humbled uh, united sinners who are uh, sharing in the comfort of love, the consolation of Christ, and the fellowship of the Spirit, as Paul says in Philippians 2.1. Uh, so uh, that's what I was preaching on. Go listen to that. I hope you're encouraged by it. Um, moving on to what am I reading? Well, you might know I am currently reading Chad Bird's The Christ Key. The Christ Key is a it's just a fantastic book. I posted a little sort of blurb on Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon. Go read that little uh, that little that little blog, um, and it just kind of introduces the ways in which Chad just so eloquently and insightfully uh, writes about Christ and the gospel, and and how he uh, how Christ is <laughs> there all throughout the Old Testament. Um, that's something that I think is so encouraging to me is that there there's never been a time or a moment in which in which Christ is is far away he makes himself seen and known and heard and and he demonstrates his saving power and his amazing grace yes even through those <laughs> really troubling waters of the old testament he's there he uh, he always puts himself in those those moments and i'm really thankful that uh, chad has written this book that brings that out in a really he fleshes this theme out in a really, really excellent way. So uh, I put a link in the notes for this show to get that book. I highly recommend it. It's a little... I mean, Chad is super readable, and it's super accessible. Uh, he uses a lot of Hebrew words, and so, uh, you know, at first it might seem, quote, academic, but it's not. Chad is so uh, accessible in his writing, so I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Whether you're a preacher or just, you know, maybe you're just a, a lay person in the church or just a church attender, you need this book. It'll change the way you read the Bible, and I think that that's and what Chad is wanting to do is, is just encourage people who have been thinking about this, the centrality of Christ in Scripture, but also uh, maybe perhaps introduce this theme, this idea to uh, many who've never heard it before. So uh, definitely pick that up. Go to 1517.org, look at their store, you'll find the Christ key. There's a link in the notes for that. Go do that. I think you'll benefit greatly. What I wanted to get to um, is what has been helpful in the what has been helpful segment of the show. Um, 
is the latest online journal from the ministry Nine Marks. So Nine Marks is an online ministry, a uh, conglomerate of church ministers and all sorts of, uh, you know, faithful people in various church contexts. Uh, you know, Mark Dever is one of the lead guys of that online ministry, and they just released their latest online journal, which you can read for free. Go to Nine Marks' uh, website, and you can find that there. And there, this journal is entitled The Ordinary Means of Grace or Don't Do Weird Stuff. <laughs> which is an interesting title, but there's some really helpful articles in here, and I want to highlight two of them um, that I think sort of speak to me uh, and the way that I approach ministry and the way that I have sort of uh, sought to situate myself in terms of uh, being a pastor and being a preacher and being uh, a leader of a church, things that I'm still learning, things that I'm still uh, sort of feeling out, if you will, sort of seeking the Lord's grace and the, the the Holy Spirit's guidance in terms of how I ought to be a leader in those various contexts. Uh, the first article from this journal is entitled, The Freedom That Comes From Being Boringly Biblical by Eric Bancroft. And he talks exactly about like what you think he would talk about uh, from that title. Uh, the beauty of being, quote, boringly biblical in a world of gimmicks. There's, there's no, uh, we don't have to really sort of like uh, introduce you to this. The churches have become so gimmicky in terms of the way that they want to bring people in. Uh, and, you know, if they can have contests, have all sorts of weird entertainment and all sorts of crazy things to try and just get people through the doors, that that's their, that's their mindset. That's what matters is getting people through the doors. And there's an evangelistic intent that I think is right about some of that. But I think what is more true and what is more faithful to the word is remembering the fact that number one and number one through 100 of all it, of all church growth metrics is what Christ is the one who builds his church. <laughs> We are not the builders, as it says in Psalms, that if those who uh, are, are building in and of themselves, they are laboring in vain. They are those who are building and not embracing and being faithful to the true builder. They are laboring and they are exhausting themselves for no reason. It's, that's the world of gimmicks is a, a vain construction of an assembly of people that doesn't really resemble the church. I'll let Eric sort of talk. He says this, quote, Problems will arise in our gatherings if we turn our gaze from the risen Savior to the lost sinner. We are not called to lead a technique-based, gimmick-oriented, and sensory-driven church with all the candles and fragrance dispensers our allergies can handle. <laughs> We are called to lead our churches with the ordinary means of grace, namely the word, prayer, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Pastor, there's freedom in a simple philosophy of ministry. God hasn't called you to creativity or outpacing expectations. He's called you to a ministry of proclamation where you preach God's word without reservation or hesitation. He's called you to a ministry of shepherding, and he's told you that you will give an account to God for the lives he has entrusted you. He's called you to a ministry of intercession in which you ask for God's will to be done in the lives of his people. End quote. I love what Eric is getting at here, especially because this idea of being boringly biblical, that you can almost have this wonder of being predictable when you come to church. 
There's nothing fancy. There's no smoke. There's no lights. And I'm not dogging on churches for having that necessarily. But if that's all that they're selling you, they're not selling you on, or they're not introducing you to what is truly the rich truth of the assembly of the saints. The assembly of saved sinners is not centered around lights and cameras and, and amazing visuals and all those sorts of things that come with these gimmicky churches. What is beautiful and what is what is truly remarkable about the church is the boringly biblical truth of the gospel of the of of pastors and preachers who repeatedly, week in and week out, preach the word and execute the ordinances and engage in public offerings of prayer. This, I would say, is what makes for a faithful church, a faithful assembly of God's saints is centered around being boringly biblical. And to some, I think that that's kind of frustrating only because we like exciting things. We like, we like to be enamored. We like to be entertained. But I think there's something wonderful, again, about being predictable when you come to church. The word is going to be opened. Prayers are going to be heard. And you know who's going to be seen? Not the worship band, not the eloquence of the preacher, Christ. He's going to be seen. He's going to be uplifted. He's the one that's going to be championed. <laughs> going back to Philippians 1, uh, Philippians one, uh, 2, verse 1, there will be consolation in Christ, there will be comfort of love, there will be fellowship of the Spirit, and there will be bowels and mercies. All because of what? Christ is championed. His message is preached, regardless of context or venue, regardless of moment uh, or audience. He's the one that ought to get to the forefront. He is our focal point. I was really encouraged by Eric's words, and they speak to me, and they influence and they inspire my own philosophy of ministry to continue being boringly biblical, even if I'm being uh, encouraged or, or perhaps I'm being led to believe that I need to do something else in order to be, quote, successful in ministry. No. I just need to be boringly biblical, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Next up, in a similar tone from the same journal, is the article entitled, Good News, Ordinary Pastor, You Don't Need a Winning Personality, by Dan Miller. And Dan here writes <laughs> an interesting article uh, about and uh, addressing pastors who perhaps for one reason or another see themselves or know themselves to be dull, for lack of a better word. I think that's the word that Dan uses throughout the throughout the article. Uh, you know, there's you can see that uh, Instagram. <laughs> Instagram is notorious for this. This is one of the reasons why I'm not on Instagram anymore. Is uh, I'll confess to you, I would find myself comparing my. Uh, ability to execute ministry, to uh, the way in which churches run, the my my charisma, all those sorts. Of, I would find myself comparing myself to other pastors who are quote doing it better. Uh, either they're more charismatic, they have w way more charm, they're they're more winsome, they're more funny, they're more humorous, they have all these things that are put together. They are able to accomplish really extraordinary things. And that comparison is so devastating. That comparison uh, sort of castrates the spirit. 
it dampens, I think, what really truly is beautiful is the fact that one, God doesn't call the winsome and the charismatic and the amazing and the funny and the strong and the smart and the intellectual. He calls the foolish of the world to shame the wise. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. He calls the weak things of the world to overthrow the strong things. <laughs> and here Dan Mailer writes about the same similar thing, especially in the terms of con- uh, the context of pastoral ministry, where he writes this, quote, The Spirit uses ordinary means of grace to accomplish extraordinary works, and Christ uses ordinary stewards of that grace to broker extraordinary influence for his kingdom. Such lasting achievement is never effected by the power of one's personality, ever. It is affected only by the power of the living God to save and transform souls. Before his eternal throne and in his glorious presence, we will boast only of him forever. End quote. Amen. God uses ordinary stewards to champion and carry forth his extraordinary grace. That's what he needs to build his church. He doesn't need personality or charisma or any of those things. You know what he needs to build build, build his church is, is pastors and, and preachers, and I would say church members who are sold out on the idea of being boringly biblical. I would say it's called being faithful. That's all that counts. That's all that's ever mattered is, is faith. And for the pastor, that's what matters. For the church members, that's what matters. It reminds me of what Martin Luther says. He's famous for saying, I did nothing. The word did it all. <laughs> the preached word, the, 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 the word that's experienced through song, the words that's experienced through the ordinances, the word that is experienced through uh, serving and ministry, that's the word that pushes back the darkness and it snatches sinners from hell. It's the preaching of the word. It's being boringly biblical in terms of saying, I am standing on the truth of Christ crucified and nothing else. No gimmicks, no tricks, no hacks, no nothing, (laughs) except for everything which is found in Christ. I was extremely blessed by this uh, edition of the online journal through nine marks. I hope that you are as well. Go find those articles, read them, engage with them. Uh, I think you will be blessed by them. What should you remember this week? You should remember this. Messy situations are no match for God's mercy. Precisely because God always works in the smoldering crater of our ruin and rebellion. That's where he is found. (laughs) Again, that's where God situates himself. He positions himself in the midst of all of the things that seemingly would turn others away. And he says, this is where I'm found. This is where I want to be known. And he's known in those moments. May we be blessed by the God who meets us in our deepest needs the God who is with us through suffering, the God who is with us in all of our ordinary days, (laughs) even days that are extraordinarily grievous, we have this God who never leaves us. Amen for that. 
Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Ministry Minded Podcast. I hope you've been blessed by this episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Ministry Minded. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate all of your encouragement and support. Uh, thank you for listening and for commenting and subscribing. Uh, check out Fresh Roasted. Check out graceupongrace.net. Uh, that's where I do all of my online ministry <laughs> endeavors. And so uh, go there, read some articles, subscribe. I would appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings. Blessings.